Greetings. You are back inside the Feed the Ball Salon, a welcoming place to share ideas and have warm conversations about golf courses and golf course architecture. I'm your host, Derek Duncan, Associate Editor for Architecture at Golf Digest, and in just a moment, my co-host, golf course builder Jim Urbina, and I will have a long talk with Bobby Weed. While we're not, unfortunately, nearing the end of this pandemic in any medical or lasting way, it does occur to me that these salon episodes will begin winding down as we all begin to get a little busier. Jim and I hope that over the last two months, these talks have given you some reprieve and some joy and helped keep golf course design at the forefront of your thoughts. There are far worse things to have on your mind. In the last volume, we chatted with Gil Hans about his creative process, a considerable topic given the kind of work he and partner Jim Wagner have been putting out over the last decade. In this volume, Bobby Weed joins us to go deep, really deep, like professorially deep, on the most important elements of architecture, and he gives us an inside look into the way Pete Dye worked, as well as a discussion about his creative process at places like The Grove, the private course he built last year for client Michael Jordan. If you'd like to reach out to us with questions or comments, the best way to do so is at Derek underscore Duncan at discovery.com or to follow me on Twitter and Instagram at FeedTheBall. We'd also appreciate it if you'd leave a star rating and review at Apple Podcasts or wherever else you download your entertainment. I know you're ready, so let's dive right into the world and work of Bobby Weed. You know, Derek, when we talk about architecture, when we talk to several people and we talk to a variety of people and a variety of different ideas in, in, in regards to design, routing, building, uh, doing it yourself, shaping yourself, working with the land. I always like this quote from Thomas. Uh, do you mind me reading it to you? I'd love to hear it. Thomas says, and I quote, do not strive for length where you sacrifice character. Your yard is less valuable of the two considerations. But sufficient length with type and strategy is the ultimate. The course which demands the greatest number of placements from the tee and the most diversity of shots both from the tee and to the green is the best test. Far better a fine medium length hole than a poor long one. On the other hand, do not sacrifice length providing no undue local conditions render it impractical. And in selecting the land for your course, always look for diversity on different types of ground to be played over. And I think to myself, we always have to be careful about what we're striving for. And I remember telling you and telling one of your listeners about throwing away the scorecard. Thomas says it clearly. Do not strive for length when you will be sacrificing character. And that's the thing that I always try to grasp and I always try to learn from other architects, designers, builders. What do they find important? What makes them tick? What makes them think the ultimate golf course routing, yardage, design, green, those things, Derek, I always wonder, do architects give them their due? Do you think yardage is overplayed sometimes? 
I have to say yes, don't I? I mean, absolutely it is. Absolutely. Um, for, for many, many years, and there are understandable reasons for it. it you know, it's, it's, the, it's in the, the ideology of the masses. We, we get so much of our golf information from the television and from the PGA Tour, and it's increasingly about length going back decades, and, and it's, it's you know, on hyperdrive right now. But the really great golf courses, and I think we've talked about this before, the really great golf courses, par and yardage is not important. There are some great golf courses that are, you know, 6,500 yards from the back tee. The greatest, some of the greatest holes in the, in the world are 310 yards. Uh, some of the greatest par fives are 490 yards. You know, so, so yes, yardage is, is not important. Pars, as you've always said, throw out the scorecard. That's not important. Interest is important, right? Character, that's what that's what that quote is all about, is the most, the highest ideal in golf architecture is got to be character and interest. And, and that's, those are nebulous words. I don't know if you can put a definition on those. I don't know if there's a one size fits all, but there are definitely golf courses that are devoid of interest and devoid of character. And I would think that by using building interesting features using interesting landforms whatever whatever is is necessary interest and variety is is got to be the highest ideal i didn't mean to put you on the spot i know these these, like these are tests are always so stressful (laughs) i i didn't mean that in any way that's a uh, c plus answer there derek (laughs) i'm gonna give you a pass fail i'll take it yes can you ask me like a true false question <laughs> but you answered it perfectly. It was like the modern age of design has weighed heavily on yardage. And your answers were I can't even imagine people thinking about that, but your answers were so uh, clear and distinct because it was about all the other things. And I think it was an A plus, uh, Derek, if you don't mind. <laughs> Well, you know what, when you were reading that passage and I started to think about the concept of, of character and the concept of, of creating something that's interesting, I think back when I first moved to Florida in 2000 and I first started getting into journalism and golf writing and I played a lot of golf courses in Florida and most of them, I was just excited to be playing golf. You know, I was new to the state, so I, I was had an open mind. But when I played the golf courses of our guest, who's going to be joining us pretty soon, there was always something about those golf courses that stood out to me. They were just different. The shaping was different. The things that the ball did around the greens were different. The way the 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 feature set up to kind of play tricks with your eyes was different. They just had a different aura about them. They had a depth and a dimension that most of the other golf courses that I was seeing for the first time didn't have. And so we're going to talk to Bobby Weed about this. You know, Jim, he's had such a long career and going back to, you know, the early 80s working for Pete Dye, you know, he then he, he was with the, the PGA Tour designing golf courses. He's had his own business for a long time. He was doing a lot of the things that we praise right now and that we really value in golf design, like cool uh, shaved edges around the greens, little chipping swales, making you think how you want to play a shot, bump, putt, flop, uh, you know, offsetting bunkers, interesting green shapes. He was doing all that stuff far, far prior 
to what, you know, this for the last 10 years where a lot of that stuff has been really embraced by the whole design community. So I don't think he gets as much credit as an innovator as he as he probably deserves. So I'm looking forward to talking to him about some of these things. Of course, we're going to talk about Pete Dye. I think you and he will have a lot of interesting stories to trade. But I just kind of wanted to think about, I, I kind of wanted to, 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 to frame it that way because your quote aligns perfectly for the kind of golf courses that Bobby Weed's been designing for a long time. And, you know, I, I've seen five Bobby Weed designs and one of the ones that caught me most was the White Manor right. in the Philadelphia area. I really, really like. And I also really like this one they did up in Minnesota, Stone Ridge. Mm-hmm. And when I walked it, I, I was doing consulting work at White Bear Yacht Club. And I had an, half a day to run over there and take a look. And I was looking at their sight lines, and, and they just they just aligned and exactly what I look for in a golf course when somebody spends the right amount of time on the golf course. And I'm, I'm curious to talk to Bobby about both of those golf courses. Now I've seen uh, the TPC at Summerlin and I've seen the TPC at Las Vegas. Those golf courses, you know, you know, I don't know if they have the same character that the other two I talked about, White Manor and Glenn Mills has, but I'm curious to see uh, how much uh, influence uh, and where the influence came for Glenn Mills and and White Manor, both. Uh, I'm waiting to, to ask that question to Bobby for sure. And let's not waste any more time, Jim. Let's flip it over to our conversation with Bobby Weed. Like I said, I know there's going to be a lot of talk about Pete Dye, but we also are going to get into some of these uh, concepts and ideas that I brought up and some of the golf courses that, that you just mentioned too. And we'll probably get into the Grove 23 as well, the, the course that opened last fall for play and is getting a little more notoriety now because it's the private golf course of Michael Jordan. It's in South Florida. So I'm looking forward to the conversation. Jim, are you ready to do it? Let's do it. Can't wait. Here we go. So what are you? What's going on at Pontevedra? What are you doing that's different than you did last time? Is it any? Is it any um, structural changes, or is it mostly just kind of freshening it up? No, it's um, there are some substantial changes. We actually um, did some rerouting and um, expanded the driving range. We excavated a lagoon for a lot of dirt quite a bit of dirt and um, freshened up all the golf holes, took a little more liberty than we did in, um, in 98. Mm-hmm. Were there things that you wanted to do in 1998 that you just didn't feel like you could, or did your ideas develop in the last 20 years? Um, hold on. I had to, I'm trying to find my volume. Hey, Derek, hey, Derek I'm try- I was trying to turn my volume up here so um, I could hear a little better. So, um, my ears are my ears are ringing from the damn equipment all day. I hear you. You got to get those earplugs in there, Bobby. Yeah, and I'm, I think I'm beyond that. I think uh, <laughs> the earplugs need to be replaced with um, hearing aids. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> no, I'm okay. I'm okay. Um, I just needed to get my volume up. Those, those machines are loud, I'm though. Sorry, so Derek, um, Derek, you were asking me. I'm sorry. Uh, um, you were asking me something, and I, I, I was halfway hearing and trying to halfway turn my, my dang microphone. Yeah, up. well, I mean, you, you'd kind of explained some of the things that you've been working on at, at Ponte Vedra on the ocean course, and you said you were 
kind of taken it up a level versus the 98 renovation. And I asked you if in 1998, were there things that you wanted to do there, but that you didn't feel like you could pull off or that maybe the, the client didn't, wasn't going to, wasn't going to go for it. Or have you had more thoughts or more de- developed feelings about your d- work there over the last 20 years? Yeah, I'm smarter than I was 20 years ago. And um, <laughs> I took a, that makes I took one a of little us. more liberty this time. I think I, um, I think um, in 98, um, I um, uh, massaged and probably paid more homage and respect to what was there, although it was the original 1928 Herbert Strong golf course, which was actually in a magazine. It was voted as one of the three hardest golf courses in the United States. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then Trent Jones came in. Trent Jones came in, I think it was either 45 or maybe 55, maybe 45, and, um, and updated the golf course and um, made probably made some pretty significant changes. So um, I, I, I tend, it seemed like I may have memorialized a little bit more of what was there in, um, in 98, whereas this time around, um, I took a little more free hand and liberty to, uh, to put more Bobby Weed into the golf course, if that makes sense. Absolutely. It does make sense. And I'm curious about that, Bobby, uh, Jim Urbina here. I was always wondering, uh, mostly because you spent a lot of time down in the Southeast, were there golf course architects that you most admired uh, living in the Southeast? Or did you really seek out all of them and try to learn a little bit from, from all of them? Um. Well, I mean, most of my exposure has been with Pete, first and foremost, pretty exclusively dating back to the 70s when I first met Pete. I was pretty blown away by doing an internship at Amelia Island Plantation in North Florida, which was um, kind of a sister course to Harbortown, both of them built by Sea Pines Corporation. Prior to that, Um, you know, some of the better courses in the Carolinas were probably George Cobb, Ellis Maples, um, good, good, solid design. Um, but, um, nothing, nothing along the lines of what Pete ushered in. And, um, frankly, from that point forward, from the, from the mid seventies, um, you know, my playbook has been right there, open with Pete. That's interesting you say that because I've often wondered, and Bobby, I in no way, shape, or form have been around Pete as much as you had. I did three golf courses with him, TPC at Plum Creek, Stonebridge and, and Plano, Texas with Rod Whitman and Pete, and then Arizona State University. So I had – not even an inkling of the time spent with Pete as you did. Do you feel, Bobby, that you could ever be Bobby Weed, or will you always be one of Pete's guys? Um, 
Yeah, no, I think I'm, I think I'm, I think I'm Bobby Lee, but I've got Pete, I've got Pete Dye sitting on my shoulder um, at all times. Because I often wonder if people would ask you when you're designing, when you're laying out your golf courses, like the Grove, the one you just did, were you thinking about, because I'll be honest with you, I saw a couple holes there that, that I recognized. Was Long Cove in the back of your mind when you're doing some of the holes at the Grove? No, not at all. No, I, I, you know, we haven't been tagged with any particular design style, Jim, and I think that's, frankly, I think that's a good thing. Um, I agree. So, so we, um, we have free reign, uh, myself, Chris Monty, and um, our newest associate, Joey Graziani, who's, who's really, um, I think this week may be as, um, he's actually here with me. Um, Joey's, uh, I think, coming up on his first year anniversary with me this week. And um, um, graduate from uh, LSU, and uh, he, interned with, he interned with us two years ago while he was uh, still in school. And we basically um, told him at the end of the summer, where was that, at the Grove? Yeah, at the Grove, and um, we said you finish up, you finish up at LSU with your LA program, and if you still want to come to work after that, you've got a spot with us. And um, so anyway, he's here with us. But uh, um, I digress a little bit. But he, um, we we had no preconceived notions other than at the Grove we had a pretty flat featureless site because it was an old citrus grove. And, um, and it had two, I had, I, I had the opportunity to pick the site, um, out of two. And I picked the site that, um, had the drainage canals on the North end and on the West end. Um, because I know, I know that's what Pete would have done right off the bat. Um, faster we can get water off the property is, um, is always going to be preferred. So right off the bat, um, everything I learned from Pete kicked in on site selection. And that was, Hey, if I've got a drainage canal that's 15 feet below me, I feel pretty good about it. So, um, that's, um, that's where we started with the site, but, um, um, there was no thoughts of, um, of, past golf courses um frankly i don't think you want that particularly when you start routing a golf course uh, you don't want to be you don't want to be uh hamstrung in any way um you want free reign and um and, and and there we just had almost a bit of a square piece of property that was about i think it was about 226 227 acres and both sites were about that side there was one to the east and then the one we chose was to the west. And then the other thing I really liked about it is we had the uh, we had a state park to our north, and um, we had a massive piece of property to our west that was just used for cattle grazing. And upon researching, found out that this family owned it and wanted to put it into a perpetual trust. And um, and and therein became 
the comment that I made to you, Derek, down there was, hey, there's our ocean, because mm-hmm. it was such a it was such a beautiful vista, so calming, such a decompressing view. Um, and I'm like, if we could just pick up those pastures and bring them across the canal onto our site and just spread that over the site and let our golf course um, uh, just kind of ramble over the top of what we create, um, we'll have something that nobody's really seen down here. And, um, and that's kind of where it started. Bobby, you know, I want to go back to that comment you made after Jim asked you about Pete and you said you have Pete Dice sitting on your shoulder. And, and well, we talked to Gil Hans recently and, and talked about sort of like the influence of a, of a designer's early years and whether an architect is always going to be influenced by whoever they're taught by or if there's something kind of innate within them that even if you get taught one way, if you've got a certain type of creative spirit or a vision, it's, it's going to come out. Do you, when you think about all your time with Pete, could you have turned out any other way? Because I know, I know that he's, he is influential in your design. Now at the Grove, you weren't, you definitely weren't thinking about any particular golf course, but there are Pete die hole structures. You mentioned like the fourth hole. There is that classic S shaped par five. Is that something that you were always going to be, or could you have turned out uh, differently had you been, you know, brought up under somebody else's guidance? Yeah, you mentioned S shape. You mentioned S shape holes. Well, that's the essence of a great golf hole. And um, um, uh, you know, if you can if you can S shape your way around a golf course um, with left to right and right to left, you're, you're doing what what all these guys in the Dead Architect Society did uh back in the golden era um um right so that's not so, necessarily uh, a pete die creation correct i guess the question though is <laughs> could you have envisioned yourself um being any other kind of designer you know uh then then it seems like you uh, did you adopt a lot of you know what what pete was teaching you or did it just come naturally was it a natural fit um, well, Pete operates. Pete operates and operated in the field, and um, um, and that was kind of my background. I grew up in the field. My dad was in the construction business. <coughs> Excuse me. My grandparents were farmers. One of my grandparents was um, in the peach orchard business, and they were the largest peach growers in the state of South Carolina. Georgia may be known as the peach state, but we grew more peaches in South Carolina than Georgia ever thought about growing. Hey now. Um, so, so my background, <laughs> my background being outdoors construction, um, and farming was a, was a natural fit with Pete because he had a phenomenal work ethic. The one thing that nobody really talks much about with Pete was his work ethic. And I came from a very strong work ethic with my family. And um, so all of that, all of that meshed extremely well for me. I, I had a, uh, I became good friends with Jack Nicholas and Jack asked me pretty flattering, asked me on a couple of occasions if I could, if I was interested in coming to work for him. And um, my, my comments on both occasions were, Jack, um, I come from the Pete Dye School of Design, and, um, and you guys operate differently. You both produce 
phenomenal product, but you get there differently. No different than being a golf course superintendent. Most golf course superintendents ultimately try to achieve the same results, but they all go about it a little bit differently. And um, Jack was much more regimented, plan-oriented with uh, a lot of layers and, um, and very successful, by the way. And, and Pete was, you know, digging it out of the dirt and, um, which, which really fit me, which really fit me perfectly. Um, so, uh, I don't know if that, that gets to what you were asking, but, um, yeah, that, that's, that's how, that's how it became a good fit for me. Right. Is that why you're still floating your own greens, Bobby? I am the last person on every green that I've ever built since the early eighties. I am the Correct. absolute last person on every green. I, uh, and, and in the last five or six years, I have only reverted and gone backwards. That is I'm now living on the site and I'm shaping all my features. I'm uh, I, I just, I kind of got tired of, um, trying to convey my thoughts to shapers who may have just come off of a, of a great Fazio course or necklace course or, or whoever. And, um, and taking three or four or five holes to kind of shape them back into what I'm trying to do. And, and, and Jim, you know, being a, being a shaper that, you know, it just gets watered down, you know, with layers, it just gets watered down. And, um, so, um, changing, I never, I never have a problem, never had a problem changing anything in the field while we're there. Cause we're there so much more than most, most, uh, architects. And from a, from a design standpoint and a designer, we, uh, we spend an inordinate amount of time on site on the property shaping and molding. And the one thing I learned from Pete is don't ever be afraid to change what you have because Pete always took the position, you know, you may be shaping something for Pete and he comes by and takes a look at it and it can be anywhere. It could, it could be anywhere from, Oh, you dumbass to um, that's fantastic. I wouldn't have thought of that uh, somewhere, somewhere on either end of the extremes there. And, um, but the one thing <clears throat> Pete would do he would really never ridicule you. The only thing, if you would ever, the only thing you could ever do wrong working for Pete was to do nothing. Um, doing nothing um, would um, would not go over very well. So it really didn't matter what you shaped if you tried to follow what he was scribbling, and he scribbled in the dirt much better than he scribbled on paper, and um, and, and we use that as a template. Um, but what I learned early on was don't be afraid of making a change and, and tearing up what you just built and, and changing it and starting over or adjusting or refining because that's what Pete did. And, um, so that was a massive lesson for me when I, when I, either when I'm shaping and I get off, and I go back and look at it and say, 
and it's not working to not worry about it. Just go back and change it because when you're doing it yourself, there's no such thing as change orders. I don't believe in change orders. And um, so when I'm shaping, that's a good thing for a client because I can change it a dozen times as long as I get it right. And as long as I stay on schedule and keep the train moving from a construction standpoint. I can't disagree with you at all. In fact, I still float all my greens. In fact, whenever an owner comes up to me, Bobby, I agree with you totally. I know exactly what the slopes are. I can defend all of them because I got off the sand pro and shot them. So I'm with you all the way. But I, I will tell you a couple of times while I was shaping for Pete, uh, I don't know if you ever heard this term. I called him Pete Diasms. He'd tell me to hold the phone. How many times did you hear that, Bobby? Only about a hundred thousand. <laughs> <laughs> so Derek, that that was Pete's way of. And frankly, it wasn't a bad thing. It wasn't. He didn't really mean it in a bad way when he called you a dumbass. He'd say, "Get over here, you dumbass." I was twelve years old before I knew my name anyway, because up until I was twelve years old, it was always "Hey boy" right. for, my, for my dad. So um, that, that that kind of fit in okay too. But he never he never meant it in a derogatory fashion. No. I mean, he'd say the same thing to he'd say the same thing to PB and um and myself. Agree uh, totally. So uh, it, it that was not a bad thing. It was just, it, it, in fact, it was a little badge of honor. It means he, he really took interest in you. And um, uh, as weird as that may sound, that was just um, that was just one of those pedisms. And uh, Derek, I, I, in no way did I mean that as slight, but that is absolutely true. Uh, uh, he asked you to be creative. You got to get, you got to get, as I said, you start jazzing things up, huh, Bobby? You start jazzing it up, and then he'd tell you to hold the phone because <laughs> he wanted to get his two cents in. And I totally agree about the idea that you build it, you fix it, you change it, you build it again, you shape it until you like it, and you can't change your, you can't charge yourself your own change order. So Bobby has it correct. Just build it till you like it, and if it takes you all day, two, three days, then nobody can tell you, well, that, that's going to be extra. I hate the word change order. You're going to have a couple bites at the apple anyway. You're going to shape it and rough it in so that it can have some drainage put in, and, um, and that destroys everything. So you get a chance to come back and put it back, and sometimes you put it back, and it's not quite the same. Um, as before, but you know, the lows are the lows and, um, the drainage is, is really the only thing that matters. And then, um, irrigation comes through and they tear everything up and you get another bite at the apple to come back. So you're fine tuning it from the very beginning. You're just fine tuning it. You just change the equipment as you go along. And, um, you know, there's some, there's some pieces of equipment I just don't allow on my site, you know, just just don't bring a box blade or a steel drag matter. So just don't bring one of those on my job site uh, because all the only thing that'll happen to it is it'll sit over somewhere and collect rust because it's not going to get used. Um, we grew up, we grew up at Long Cove, and nobody, nobody knew how to run equipment. We all, we all kind of just winged it, and the uh, the the biggest ally we had was a furious mat, a flexible tine harrow. And that would make us all look good because we had that tine harrow dragging behind us all the time because nobody on a dozer could could um, could push a straight blade of dirt 
um, without it going up and down. And, and as a result, Long Cove may be one of the best contoured golf courses and particularly fairways I've ever seen. And, um, and that's directly attributable to PB. But we didn't know. We, you know, there's, and even today, um, uh, a couple pieces of equipment that we absolutely are going to have um, are a couple of Furious mats, flexible tine harrows, and um, our, um, our Easy Rider Smithco uh, trap rake with a belly blade that is not hydraulic. It's, 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 um, it's manual and you, and you feel everything under the middle blade with your hand. So you're, you're fine tuning, uh, as you go from initial shaping to, to when you throw the flags in for the drainage, you get the drainage in there and they blow everything up and then you go back and start putting it back. But that's not to say it's going to look the same. Uh, it, it may be, it may be close. It may be similar or, um, we may end up adding a couple more basins online for something else that has spurred our interest along the way. So it's a, it's a total evolving process. Whereas some of these other guys have put out enough stakes that the place could absolutely burn down because of wooden laths and stakes and whatnot. And they got plans out there and they're staking, they're staking it all out. And I've seen some of that. I know you guys, I know you have seen that as well, Jim, to the point where I can't make heads or tails. And it just seems like it's totally handcuffing because now you're trying to steer, you're trying to steer the operator into doing what you have on a set of plans. And you're not allowing the artistic ability of an operator. And for me, the longer I sit on a dozer, the more the right side of my brain kicks in. And the, I mean, I know, I know in essence, if, if I want the green to sit in there left to right or right to left, I know that. And I kind of work from there and I kind of know where I want my basins and my lows. And I just start from there, but I have total free reign and we always build the green and work, work our way backwards. Uh, that's, that's what I learned from Pete. And that's what, that's what, what we've always done. We start at the green and we go backwards. We start with irrigation at the green and go backwards. And uh, everything, everything starts at the green and we go backwards. We always have. And, um, um, but um, that, you know, being on the dozer, uh, I, while I have a general idea and a concept, and, and you saw it, firsthand at the Grove, Derek, uh, about the only, about the only constraint I had or the only handcuff was whether the hole, whether I needed the hole to be left to right or right to left, because ultimately I was trying to balance, balance it out so that um, I didn't favor one, go, uh, one, one type of player over another. At the end of the day, I wanted, you know, five left to right, four right to left and kind of try to do the same thing opposite, opposite on the, uh, on the other nine. So, um, you know, balance, balance of, uh, tee shots, balance of getting it into the green, I think is imperative, but beyond that, I don't ever want to be handcuffed. And frankly, a lot of it comes to me on the dozer while I'm pushing and I have an idea, but it kind of evolves and, I don't want to be, 
I don't, I don't, I don't want to be tied down or handcuffed with a, with a set idea that I have to design by, because I think Pete, Pete told me early, early on, he said, you show me a golf course built by a set of plans. I'll show you a bad golf course. And (laughs) I truly believe that. Hey, if you have not downloaded the Golf Digest app, now is the time to do so. Why? Because the current issue, Issue 6, is only available in the digital edition. The issue celebrates the magazine's 70th anniversary and is full of interactive videos and great retrospective features, including Ron Witten's list of the most important American golf course opened in each calendar year going back to the 1890s, the best swing tips from each decade given by Golf Digest player editors from Ben Hogan to Tiger Woods, the most important equipment breakthroughs of each decade, and a golf IQ quiz from Herbert Warren Wind. So go to your app store, download the Golf Digest app, and read our special edition issue six for free. Now back to Bobby Weed. Well, Bobby, while we're on this, I want to, this is something I, I intended to bring up and I'm glad we got to it. You mentioned before that the Grove was, was 225 or so acres of, of agricultural flat land. Now that you've, you know, I don't know how long it's been since you've worked on a site like that from scratch, you know, been able to really create something out of nothing on a featureless site. Now that it's fresh in your mind and, and you've had a chance to do it and you had a fair amount of freedom, as you just described, how, what do you th- think about building on a flat site? Did it make you realize the potential, the liberating potential that a site like that has? Or did you feel like despite all the freedom you had, there's still, you know, did it, did it, confirm that there are limitations on on flat sites and it's always better or mostly better to have a a nice moving site that has some features to play off of where do you land on that now after the grove is complete uh i'm i'm fine with a flat site because then you have a blank slate a blank palette you can create anything and everything you want to uh the challenge then is to create features that are you know somewhat indistinguishable from what you find naturally so it's a it's a fairly low profile golf course. Uh, would you call it flat? Um, I don't know. Maybe it's kind of a linksy feel. Um, it's got more of a linksy feel because it's so open. Yeah, it's rolling and, um, and bumpy. It's got a room with, with very few trees, but it's just kind of crinkled. It's kind of crinkled. You know, when you go when you go out in the woods. Um, growing up with your girlfriend and you throw down a blanket, you know, the blanket just kind of crinkled all over the ground. And, and that's, you know, that's what occurs naturally. That's what occurs in nature. And um, so um, we were able to achieve that. And, um, but at the same time, I I don't know um, how much elevation, Joey, do you think we ended up with at the Grove? 15? 15, 11 to 15. Yeah, maybe 15 feet max, plus or minus. I don't know. I hadn't really stopped and looked at it. the clubhouse, it's 20 feet. Topo. Yeah, the clubhouse is obviously the tallest thing. I think the clubhouse ended up finished elevation was about elevation 24. Most of the golf course was anywhere from 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, up to 15, maybe, stuff like that. So it wasn't a massive amount, but, you know, cutting, you know, when you cut, when you cut in front of a, landing area cut in front of a green four or five feet and then push that dirt up either way you know you can sometimes you can create you know six eight plus feet of um of change so um you know frankly it just gives you you know you have no constraints uh, you have no constraints i mean we 
the only constraints we had is that, um, you know, with the site, we had to have X number of acres of retention. And that's where the engineers came in and they, they kind of provide that. But, you know, um, there was no better barnyard engineer than Pete. And, um, um, you know, Pete would, Pete, Pete was so common sense when it came to engineering, you know, he just, he just had his day. He would just run circles around engineers, um, with his, um, with what he was doing and, and, and what he could do as far as draining a site and moving water through a site. So we, we had, we had free reign and liberty of doing that as well. Um, you know, we got, uh, we got hung up um, on some things engineer that we just really dug our heels in. They wanted the water levels to be much higher. And, you know, we wanted the water levels to be as low as we could get them for free board. So, um, we went back and forth on that a lot. And, um, uh, but those are, those are inherent issues and problems that every site is faced with on the, um, on the front end. But at the end of the day, uh, it's all about drainage, period. If, uh, Pete, Pete always said, if it doesn't drain, it does not work, mm-hmm. period. And I can tell you, Derek, uh, Pete sent me to Old Marsh uh, when we were doing golf course out in Arizona, believe it or not. Pete was worried about some drainage in Arizona. But he sent me to Old Marsh, and he said, Jim, I want you to look at Old Marsh. We built everything up in the air. And he was so proud of the way he put the pipes in the ground to store water under Old Marsh that he wanted me to go to see that. So I went and took a look. Well, they put lasers, they put lasers on the door, on the dozers. So they wouldn't go below a certain elevation at old Marsh. <laughs> really? Got it. Got it. And so uh, did you, were you involved with old Marsh, Bobby? No. Because I always thought that was very in, in, ingenious of Pete, as you talked about drainage. I thought that was very ingenious how he, brought everything up in the air to combat the, the low water levels. And so I was just curious if the Grove had any of that. Well, it was a permit requirement at Old Marsh. Um, it's a closed system. The drainage is a closed system, much like similar at uh, Metalist. Both Metalist and Old Marsh um, had a, a, a closed system to where uh, all the drainage was contained. And um, at Metalist, we had a series that um, Jason – um, Jason McCoy, uh, working at working with Pete, put in um, all these sumps and um, basically um, utility like sewer uh, lift stations, and right. um, and they moved water uh, and pushed water around, and ultimately came back to a blind irrigation lake that we recycled. Uh, very environmentally sensitive and friendly, and that was basically required. Really, the only way you could have done old marsh. Um, and, and, and metalist and, um, and, and, and that all came from Pete and, and Pete started doing that. Pete started doing that. Um, probably, probably, uh, at Gulfstream as early as anything when he was living, when he was living down there with his parents and then he ultimately lived, built and lived there. He and Alice raised their kids there and, um, um, but he showed me some sumps that he put in there. Gosh, I mean, probably back in the early 60s or maybe even before Perry or PB would have to respond to that. But um, um, that's he started doing that early, early on. He did a, he did a little bit 
up at um, up at the golf club where he had some fairways below the lakes, and um, which is kind of unique. Um, so um, he was innovative from an engineering standpoint. He was he was brilliant. He he knew he knew he knew engineering and he knew how to drain and move water um, on a golf course like nobody else. And, um, and so that's why he always seemed to get the most difficult sites. Um, um, there was no more difficult site than the tournament players club at Sawgrass because PB and I were living in Hilton head in a condo and he was bouncing back and forth between the tournament players club at Sawgrass and, and Longco. And, um, you know, on a number of occasions, he, he commented that he just didn't know if they could finish and build a course at the players club at, um, at Sawgrass. And, um, um, it was just, it was just that difficult between dealing with the low elevation, natural elevation, I think was about five feet above sea level. And, um, um, and the, and the muck and the bad soils to go with it. Uh, it was, um, it was quite a challenge, but he had, you know, he, he, he created a phenomenal crew there, um, headed up by David Postelate and, um, and, and, um, they did a phenomenal job and built, they built a heck of a golf course. And Bobby, that just to let you know, that's how I got my start was with David Postelate. He taught me how to move dirt. And uh, I'm so thankful for that, uh, hanging around David and, and watching him move dirt. People don't understand how how sometimes it could be difficult, but David made it look easy, and that's how I got to learn through through David and through Pete. He was so I'm glad good, you shared this. He was as good as anybody. Yeah, he was as good as anybody you know, and um, um, and Pete recognized that, and um, Pete had a knack of finding people like that, and. Um, Rod Whitman, um, Rod and I worked together. I worked with Rod a little bit. Rod was running the job out of Austin Country Club, and they were they would blast every day at three o'clock, and um, and, um, and and that was tough on Rod. That was a little tough on Rod, um, but um, you know he he ran a great job site, and um, and um, that was a really tough that was a tough tough site. Um, to to design and build on there, but you know there again, um, Pete had a knack of of taking individuals and um and um turning them into superstars. And Derek, that's the untold story that I think that that Bobby's touched on. The amount of people that Pete touched that helped him build these golf courses: Al McCurick, uh, David Postaway, Lee Schmidt. Uh, the list goes on and on. The Seidner brothers out of Ohio. I mean, the, the, the list goes on and on of people who helped Pete build these golf courses. And I know that Pete was forever indebted for that. And Derek, he treated everybody the same, whether you were a shaper, a superintendent, the owner. You had Pete's respect. If, like you said, Bobby, you worked hard, 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 hard. You worked hard. That's all he cared about. Yeah, there's no question. I think I commented early on after Pete passed away that as great a legacy as his golf courses would have, I think an equal part of that legacy were all the people that he touched 
and um, and put into the business, into the industry from from superintendents to project managers to to golf course designers to to um, operators. Um, you know, and and it didn't matter if you were Herb Kohler or if you were an uh, an equipment operator. Um, if you worked hard and you were good at what you did, um, you were a friend of Pete's. Bobby, one of the things that I thought was interesting, going back to the Grove, just maybe one last time, is you've described that golf course as being contemporary or or modern. Which, and, and if you see pictures of it, it is it. It does have a very kind of precise, um, beautiful aesthetic to it. And I find that interesting because we're in this moment now when what is in vogue is wouldn't be considered uh, contemporary. In fact, I don't know that, that there are that many um, designers who are getting really great jobs who are would try to go for something that you would term as contemporary. In fact, they would try to go historical. They would try to make the golf course look old and weathered. And, and and classic and, and vintage. Can you describe your thoughts about that? Was that a decision based just on the site and maybe the needs or desires of the client? Or is, is there something greater at work, an aesthetic statement that you're trying to make by kind of cutting against what's popular now? Yeah, I think we were going against the grain a little bit. We wanted to step out and, you know, we see what everybody else is doing and um, we'd like to be, we'd like to be a bit of a trendsetter and um, go in a different direction and progressive and contemporary uh, seem to, um, to fit what, what Chris and I initially came up with at, um, at the Grove. And um, I think we accomplished that. Um, so, um, and then, you know, our, our client kind of, kind of fit that, fit that mold as well. So, um, um, I, I think it turned out and it was a good fit from the, uh, from an owner's perspective. Uh, I think it was a refreshing, um, new look from a, from a design standpoint and uh, perspective. And, um, um, it was a lot of fun along the way. I mean, I think you have to enjoy, you know, as hard as we work, as hard as we work from sun up to sundown on construction projects, um, you know, if you're going to work that hard, you, you need to enjoy what you do and have fun doing it. And, um, uh, we did, I mean, I look forward, I, I look forward to every day. I moved down there and, uh, lived on the site. So, uh, you know, uh, there wasn't anything else for me to do. And, um, um, you know, late in the afternoon when everybody else left, um, uh, the only comment I had to every uh, to all the subs and all the contractors was make sure there's plenty of fuel in that equipment uh, when you leave because <laughs> there's a good chance I may I may run a few pieces out of fuel so um, um, uh, so you, you you know you can read all these architecture books but um, uh, at, at the end of the day um, you know it all happened it all happens in the field. Good question for me. I, I got to ask you this, Bobby. Did Pete, I didn't work on a lot of routings with Pete. I was a shaper. I was a design associate on site. I didn't, and I'm not trying to claim that I watched Pete do routings. But my question to you, Bobby, do you think Pete did a routing and then, and then masterfully shaped it to his liking or do you think that when he was doing his routing, he was already thinking about how
how he was going to shape the features. Because you said, and that's how I learned, you did it in the field. Do you think one was stronger than the other? The routing was the most important or the field work was the most important? I think it's, um, I think it's kind of a hand in glove um, type deal. Um, um, you know, the, the foundation, the foundation starts with the routing plan. Um, um, I think that's, I think that's ex- exceptionally important. And, um, and then I think the features are even more exciting because, you know, creating, creating good features um, is, is really what it's all about. So, I mean, you've got the routing and we were fortunate at the Grove to stumble on a phenomenal routing that, um, that, that Chris Monty and I, uh, came up with. And, um, um, so, uh, you know, while we didn't have much, we weren't dictated by Topo whatsoever, you know, a lot of times Topo drives, drives routing, drives so much about the site, but I know, uh, Pete did a lot of land plans. Pete did a lot of land plans, um, where, he would uh, he would walk the property. He had an innate ability of walking the property and understanding the topo and understanding the site constraints. And the very first question you always want to ask and you want to answer is, where's my outfall? Where is my outfall? There's no single bigger question to to that initiates even the routing. Um, so, I mean, you, 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 you want to understand the topo, but what trumps everything is where's the outfall, where's the water going to get out of the property. And, and, and from there, that pretty much, that pretty much dictates the routing and, and obviously any other constraints, whether it be power lines or wetlands or, you know, uh, roads or things that you, you have to work around. Um, um, uh, you know, once, once you get that, once you get that routing, um, and feel comfortable with it, um, you know, it's all about from there, the features what you do on the ground, um, is probably the most exciting, certainly for me, you know, what you do on the ground, um, is, um, is, is by far, um, I mean, that's, that's when you start thinking about that's how the sausage gets made. And, um, um, that's, that's where it happens. And, um, um, you know, the routing shows you a lot about, you know, the balance of the golf holes. Um, and Pete, Pete was a master. Pete was a master of that. Now he did take land plans that were given to him and he would massage them and, and, and alter them and change them. Uh, he had to deal with the master plan at Harbor town, but it was Pete. It was Pete that came up because that golf course was built before 1973 with the clean water act back in the sixties. Um, you know, that Harbor was, was dredged out before the clean water act and, uh, all that dredge material that came out of that Harbor basically created most of the 18th fairway, um, and, um, and, and that was Pete, Pete, um, complimenting a land plan with all those road crossings, but he, he insisted on, on, on setbacks and, um, and the road crossings didn't really bother him. I mean, obviously anybody has, 
anybody would would rather not have um, a development golf course that's strung out. Everybody knows that a core golf course has the most integrity, but it's hard to go against what was done at Harbor Town because of the vegetation and, and the setbacks and um, and what he created on a flat piece of ground and working out to the marsh, having lagoons throughout the golf course and working around heritage, low country, live oak trees. Um, so um, he, he was able he was able to 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 work, um, and, and and like I said, he did a lot of his own land plans. Uh, I can remember sitting there at night and him scratching out um, a routing, and then basically six hundred or six hundred or seven hundred feet, he'd do another golf hole, and in, in between would leave enough room for a double loaded development, and. Um, and that was even back in the day when we, we used, um, 150 feet corridors. I mean, 300, 300 foot corridors, 150 feet from the center line out to the property line. And then of course that has grown over the years as well. But, um, that, that was a standard and it still may be the standard for today, depending on whether you have a vegetated site or an open treeless site in Las Vegas, we had a, we didn't have any trees and um, um, we were, we were, we built that golf course on 400 foot corridors because, you know, there you have so much wind. So um, uh, there are variables, but um, from a routing standpoint, um, you know, Pete was, uh, I think Pete didn't probably get as much credit as he deserves on, um, on routing golf courses. You know, when you talk about the Grove and how much freedom you had there, I've seen three of the golf courses you did up in the Philadelphia and Minnesota area. White Manor, I love, and Stone Ridge and, and, and Stillwater, I love. The sight lines were unbelievable. If given today a property like White Manor or Stone Ridge in, in Stillwater, Minnesota, or another site like the Grove, what would you prefer doing? Um, well, they were all they all had their unique challenges. Um, and, and you adapt and adjust and frankly, you, you take on those challenges. Um, and, um, I think that's what makes our profession, um, so unique and so exciting. Um, uh, you, you, you know, every, every site, every site is unique at, um, Stillwater. Um, Chris and I had a lot of sand. It was a very, very sandy site once we got the topsoil off. So we moved the topsoil and we got down into pure sand it was so sandy until you couldn't hardly get around unless you're on a tr- piece of track equipment. And, um, and then we incorporated all of that around the perimeters of the golf holes and, um, uh, up at white Manor, that was, a uh, white Manor was a renovation. So completely different. You know, when you do a renovation, it's kind of like, you know, you get to see what's there and you get to see what's good. You get to see what you like and you keep what you like and you fix what's broken. And at white Manor, you know, that golf course was built on a dairy farm back in the sixties and it didn't have a tree on it. It did not have a tree on it. And they started planting trees the day the golf course was finished. And, you know, they're putting in these little two foot saplings and when I got there, we were taking timber out of there. Um, they played a senior tour event there 
and um, Jim Free won, and Jim Free's a dear friend of mine. And so I asked him, I said, well, what was the key to you winning that event at White Manor? And his comment was pretty comical. He simply said, I could hit it out from the tree, uh, from under the trees better than anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, so at White Manor, we ended up, it turned into a logging job almost. I mean, it, you know, the beautiful vistas up there and you couldn't see, you couldn't see an adjacent golf hole. So we kind of left all the hardwoods and clusters and we took out, um, we took out all the pines and the evergreens for the most part and, and opened up some beautiful long vistas. You know, that Philadelphia area has some wonderful topo and wonderful soils. And that's why they have so many great golf courses up there. And, um, so every golf course, every golf course is unique and different. I, I, I really don't have, I mean, obviously, you know, you asked me, um, what my preference is on a golf course and, 11 out of 10 people will tell you sand. <laughs> we all want to work in sand. We all, we all want to work in sand. Um, the minute you start dealing with clay and rock or something like out West in the desert where you don't have soil and you don't have water and you got to blast the caliche and blast the rock and then crush it all up and make your own soil. You know, that just makes for uh, an exorbitant cost to build a golf course. So, I mean, and we, and, and we, we've done that. So uh, I like, I like the challenge. I like, I like taking on the challenge, but um, uh, I, I don't, I mean, I think you'd be crazy. I think you'd be out of your mind if you, if you said that um, um, the preference would be, would not be uh, uh, to, uh, to work in anything other than sand um, or obviously dunes or, um, uh, or, or beachfront. Right. Um, but that just that just really doesn't exist anymore like it did maybe back in the golden era. I don't disagree. And, and, and I know that you're right about the property in, in the Philadelphia area, White Manor. But the sight lines you had at Stone Ridge, I can't remember the whole a double dog leg around a little pond. And as you stand in the landing area and you're looking at the green, you see bunkers in the distance that look like they're layered right on top of the green. And I thought, Somebody was spending some time here looking at the sight lines. You had to be happy the way the sight lines work for you at Stone Ridge. Well, there's no question that's a really great golf course. And uh, Chris and I, um, uh, Chris was our uh, on-site guy there, and um, and I lived there. We lived in the owner's house. We lived we lived downstairs in the owner's house. I don't know if he'd have us there again, but um, um, it, it worked out. It worked out wonderful because um, we had a, a great contractor and we had, better yet, we had a phenomenal superintendent and um, um, that worked with us, didn't fight us. And um, um, uh, so, and we had an owner that, um, that basically gave us a free reign um, for the most part. And it was all sand. So, I mean, um, you know, great sites make great golf courses but working with great owners and owners that understand um, great golf and, and, and pursue great golf, um, that's even a better combination. Do you think, I, I don't know, a lot of people know this, and, and I, correct me if I'm wrong, you're a trained superintendent. Is that correct? 
Uh, yes, I was. Um, I actually um, became a certified golf course superintendent and was probably, I guess, the only certified golf course superintendent and a, um, a member of the Society of Golf Course Architects at the same time for, for a number of years. But yeah, my initial training was um, agronomy and, and uh, horticulture and golf course operations. And, um, um, and I was able to, um, I think that's helped me tremendously uh, in my, in my career because, um, uh, and, and again, I go back to Pete, um, you know, Pete was always trying different things and new, new things and pushing the envelope because he wanted contrast. And, um, but what we both learned is if you don't get the superintendent to buy in to your concepts, you're absolutely dead on arrival. You don't have a chance if the superintendent does, is not on board and that's about the only thing that would really run Pete's blood pressure through the roof is um, to have somebody fighting him and, and not buying into what he was trying to do. Uh, he didn't want to push over um, guy, but um, uh, he, he wanted somebody in there that bought in to his concepts and not fighting them the whole way. And, uh, but we, we both figured out early on, that um, um, if you're putting some grasses out there that the superintendent doesn't prefer, uh, he can make you look really bad. And um, um, so the superintendent is, is just a critical component um, whenever you bring them on. I always think you ought to bring them on sooner than later and let them be part of the construction. Uh, I believe. I, I, think it, I agree totally. End up, I think you end up with a – I think you end up with a better end product, but, um, um, you know, design complements maintenance and maintenance complements design. We've all played, we've all played great manicured, maintained golf courses that just have very no little spirit. design. No in. spirit. That's right. No and spirit. Then, and then, and then you have, then you have design, you have good design that is poorly maintained and, and, and it reflects negatively. Uh, I remember, I remember Chris and I went up to Culver, Indiana, uh, to Culver Academies on love that old, golf course, love it. on an old golf course that, that only it was 27 hole master plan that only nine holes was built because it got stopped due to world war two, but they built the best nine, I think initially, and they were going to come back and add the other nine and then yet another nine to make it 27. But it ended up only being nine holes only. And um, they quit maintaining it during World War II for obvious reasons. And after that, it never really fully recovered. And pretty much all the bunkers had just kind of grown in. And while the academy, Culver Academy, a great, great uh, prep school um, just south of um, South Bend, um, uh, just, you know, all, everything had grown in, but the golf course was there. It was almost like an arche archeological dig, um, much as anything else, but it may be, maybe nine of the best green complexes we've ever seen. And so what we did is we just went up there and uncovered them. And, um, uh, and then, and then, uh, Mike Vesley, the great superintendent, he's done a phenomenal job and uh he he bought into what we what we um uh, uncovered and has 
only enhanced upon what's there today and just have to give have to give him all the credit after we left because not only did he buy into it he has enhanced upon what we left and that to me is a, a superintendent that is definitely worth their salt and worth their weight in gold and um uh, and that's why i think that place has received so much attention and it and and it's all because of the caretaker and uh, mike's done a phenomenal job up there so um you know we all look we all look for those kind of guys they're few and far between but they're out there they're out there you just got to have somebody that that buys into your vision and um and and therein lies um the two design complementing the maintenance and the maintenance complementing design and when you get those factors working together you're going to have something very unique hey uh, bobby as as we kind of maybe start to wind it down here as we, i'm listening to you speak and you're talking about all these different places you've worked around the country different types of sites different different ecosystems different soils environments it it occurs to me all the different types of golf courses you've built, all the variety that you have in your portfolio from your work in the Philadelphia area, Glen Mills, your work in Minnesota, you've been in the desert, as you mentioned, Spanish Oaks and Austin, uh, all the work that you've done in Florida, the Carolinas work. You and Your golf courses have an, an amazing range of expressions. You, at the Grove, you mentioned how you're going with more of a contemporary look to maybe sort of make a statement about that style of golf or this moment that we're in. But you have also worked in more of a historical style and tried to coax out textures using native grasses at Old Farm or the work you did at the Deltona Club, just that really intricate, chunky-edged bunkering that's like catnip for people who love bunkers. So you've had this exp- broad, expressive range, and I'm I'm sure we could, I'd love to talk to you for for hours and get your thoughts on every one of those sites and and what motivated your 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 uh, your creative input and your your design decisions. But my question is this: that seems preferable. That seems like a a, a great body of work to have this incredible range of designs and adaptability, taking on tough sites, having great sites, working at the Grove, which is flat. Do you think that variety is overlooked? Certain types of there's a certain type of architecture that's being rewarded right now, whether it's through um, the popularity contest, whether it's through magazine pages, whether it's through what what golf raiders are giving high scores and rewarding to. And and it seems like to me, and I could be wrong, and this is my question, that our our, our range of tolerance is has narrowed a little bit. But maybe I'm wrong about that. The people in your interactions and the clients that you're talking to and in your circles. Is there a great crave for a wide variety of golf, or are we kind of dangerously narrowing the things that we're responding to as golfers? Uh, I think the industry may be doing that to a degree, but um, you know, you know, the game and and architecture itself are, are incredibly subjective, and so everyone has an opinion. Um, and, and for me, um, you know, what has, I think what has diminished that's a little disappointing to me is quirky. Um, I think quirky is good. I think quirky can be great. 
And um, too many golf courses seem to be stereotyped today to where they fall into, um, you know, some some lines that um, are, I think are, are, are confining. Um, so, you know, I, I don't want to do that. Uh, I, I like I like quirky. Um, I, you know, I, you know, I, I don't want to succumb to building 7,800 yard golf courses. Um, that's why at the grow, we have so much variety. We have, we have a couple of drivable par fours. We have, uh, 150 yard par three semi blind blind par three, um, we have we have a couple of par threes that, that are you know back tee back pin placements that are just stupid long two eighty five um, two seventy um, at the Grove and 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 you know a, a par four today for these tour players you know if you're not over five hundred yards on on a number of these par fours you don't have anything so. Um, I, I hate responding and, and do not want to succumb to length being the determining factor, but you know, the disparity between golfers has never been greater. And, and that's what's made the made design so much more challenging today. But, um, um, uh, I think, I think we have developed some ideas that, that can deal with that. And I think that's what makes the business so exciting today. I'm up to the challenge. I think the manufacturers are going to have to, uh, um, or have to get reined in a little bit. But um, you know, as a golf course designer, I've never been more juiced and excited about uh, building and designing golf courses today because everything is different. It's all just totally different, and it's different, Derek, from from 20 years ago. So all those fun golf courses that we did 20, 25 years ago. Um, a lot of that is out the door today going forward. Um, you know, if you just think about it, 20, 25 years ago, we were hitting soft balls and we were putting with hard putters today. We're putting with um, soft putts and hitting hard balls. Um, so, I mean, there's so much about the game that has changed that frankly, I think golf course design um, is where we need to be putting more emphasis on on um, on uh, changing the game, accommodating the game. Obviously, we have more courses closing than opening, and um, um, you know the the two things. And a lot of this is common sense, but the two things that I realize today and going forward is uh, we have less disposable time and we have less disposable income. So we've got to figure out how to mix that in to, to make golf affordable and to get around a little bit quicker. And, and, and a lot of guys are, are out there working on that and, and being innovative. Um, and I think that's, I think that's great, but you, you can't go back and deal and build historic and, and, and design just simply based on what, what had been good, historically in the past um it, it's time it's time to get out of the box think out of the box and um um frankly you know i think quirky is good um blind holes semi-blind holes you know pete always said it's only blind once and um 
Um, and, and I think variety, I think variety adds options and interest. And, you know, while some things haven't gone out of style, um, I think it's time to look, look much, much, much more into our crystal ball and, and understand who we're building these golf courses for today. Who's going to be playing the golf courses that you're building? You know, when you renovate the golf, when you renovate a golf course, you're basically getting a mulligan on every golf hole because on every golf hole, you know, inherently what the problem is or what's good or bad. And um, you either build that in or you change it. So um, um, renovation in in many ways, um, you get to adjust and adapt um, for, for this next generation. And uh, we need to be bringing people into the game. The game, the game is hard enough as it is. We know that uh, it's a very difficult game, and um, um, uh, there, there's, there's a time to 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 challenge golfers and build golf courses um, that challenge the best players in the world. But we also have to get we have to get the fastest growing segment being the women around these golf courses at the same time. So it's a, it's a, it's a balance that we have to reach. And frankly, we got to get out of the box and we got to, uh, we, we've got to, we've got to think a little more creatively, you know, deferred strategy is uh, not what it was 25 years ago. Um, landing areas are different than what they were um, 20 years ago. So, you know, while we built some, while we were involved in some nice golf courses, built some great golf courses, um, uh, 15, 25, 30 years ago, um, you know, just like Pete, you know, given the opportunity, uh, Pete was sometimes his own worst enemy because if he had a chance to go back in and renovate his golf course, he would start all over basically right. start all over. And some, some of those golf courses are, were masterpieces. And that's why at Longco, we actually went back up there and, um, and restored, uh, um, I wouldn't call it a renovation. I would call it restored. And we probably protected uh, a golf course that Pete, that Pete spent a lot of time on uh, and lived on site. Um, and his, his handprints are all over that property and golf course. And we, we chose to go a different direction and Long Cove bought into that. So we went back and um, basically have a, have a um, uh, original Pete Dye golf course from uh, from the early 80s and um it's now been touched up but you know what it's the same golf course now whether that's good bad or indifferent i don't know but the membership sure likes it hey bobby you you mentioned this and maybe this this will uh kind of walk us out the door and i'll let jim have one more uh, something else that he'd like to ask you before we go but you mentioned this whole you mentioned outside the box could you describe and even though our listeners very few will ever get a chance to play it will you describe the 15th hole at the grove 15th hole at the Grove is the shortest par three on the golf course. And um, Chris and I were on site one day and I disappeared down into one of the drainage canals. And um, there was a big pipe that was feeding into the drainage canal and it had the purest white sand. And I got down in there and it was like a kid in a sand pile. I just started shaping and molding <laughs> what I was thinking. And I built a mold, I built a model in the dirt 
and I came running out of that ditch. It was hot as hell down in there. And I came running out of there and I went and got Chris and I said, Chris, I, I know what we're going to do on 15. I said, I actually have, I actually have something that I think resembles what we want to do. And, um, and we basically put the T the on the other side of the canal and we hit across it. So we had a diagonal hazard and we, and we, um, we, we pretty much raised the area between the T and the green up in the air. So, and we had a couple little slots to where you could get a peak. You could get a little peak of the green, but it was basically blind for the most part with some blind bunkers and a steep fall off on the right hand side. And, um, um, maybe reminiscent of some holes that you've seen before, but none that really came to my mind um, other than maybe one at Palmetto uh, up in South Carolina in Aiken where I, where I started. And um, 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 so it, it turned out to be just a, a quirky, once again, it really turned out to be a quirky little short par three um, that uh, – I think has been very well received. I think, I think, you know, it's unique, it's different. And uh, I think it's refreshing. It was refreshing to see it. And uh, sorry, sorry, Jim. Uh, I mean, it's it's one of those holes where at that placement in the match or the round, so many things can happen. If you're playing a match, you know, one guy could, can win it with a four or five easily. Well, and, and I look forward to seeing the, the Grove, to see the quirkiness that Bobby, uh, put in there, him and Chris Monty, but he brought up something interesting that I, I just want to touch real quickly. Bobby talked about getting this inspiration from playing in the sand. Uh, Bobby knows this as well as anybody, anybody who worked for Pete, shaped for Pete. Pete would get down on his hands and knees and he would create these features in the dirt, in the field, and he, he would shape it and mold it, and, and, and then he'd have us all look at it. Uh, you can't get that in a drawing, Derek. You can't get that in a, in a two-dimensional drawing. You have to kind of look at it and play with it. And I talk about it all the time, uh, playing in the dirt. Pete did that a lot, and Bobby just talked about that influence of Pete. Pete used to do that all the time. How many times, Bobby, did, did Pete, down, Pete get down on the hands and knees and start shaping in the sand and tell you to pay attention? <laughs> yeah, his comment was um... – you know, you give them a, I've got a bunch of hand sketches and they are the most scribbish, squibblish stuff you've ever seen. You can't, you can turn them upside down <laughs> inside out and, and it doesn't make any difference because you're not going to, you're not going to make any sense of them. And, and Pete knew that. I mean, he was, he was the first one to say, I can't, I can't even draw my breath. And, um, um, and, and he could, he could convey, he could convey to the operators, um, more, vividly by just kind of shaping and molding something in the dirt. So, um, you know, he was on his knees half the day. I remember at Longco, um, we were on the 10th hole and, um, we had a, a road contractor digging the lagoons and, um, we had, a had a couple of their operators. They didn't even know they were on a golf course. And um, um, some doing some just you know pushing bulk dirt and um, Pete and out Pete was famous for holding up these wire flags and saying this was this is more powerful than a D8 and we were throwing flags out 
and we threw these flags out along the left side of number 10. And he said, he told the operator to um, cut two and a half feet. And on the other side of the flags, pile that dirt up and just spread it out. So you'd have a five foot differential from the cut and the fill. And, um, and Pete said, do you understand? The guy said, yes, sir. And he didn't know who Pete Dye was from anybody. And so we came back, we came back, this was early in the morning. We came back at lunchtime and, um, the guy, older, older black gentleman was on the dozer and, um, he saw us pull up and he shut the dozer down. He stood up on the side of the track, stretched out a little bit, spit out a little chew of tobacco and looked at Pete and said, look here. Is this going to be two lanes or four lanes coming through here? (laughs) (laughs) And you know what? You know what? He was a good operator. And, you know, Pete just dropped to his knees. Pete just absolutely just dropped down to his knees. But you know what? He did exactly what Pete had instructed him to do. And he was a, he was a better operator than any of us. And, um, um, but he wasn't a shaper. He was a dozer operator, but he could, he could operate the dozer and, uh, for the road contractor. And, um, you know, Pete would just speak in the simplistic, the most simplistic of terms and, um, would ultimately, you know, take that. And, um, frankly, that's bunkers got a bunk that, that golf hole's got a bunker all the way down the left side to this day. And, um, it's right there where we put the flags, um, on the day that operator was told to cut two and a half feet and flip it up, uh, on the other side of the flags. And, uh, that was the original angle that Pete created from T to the green. And it's there to this day. That's cool. That's cool. He could work with anybody, Derek. And, and, uh, I, uh, Pete never wanted me to learn how to play golf. He said it would influence me too much. So I know that he enjoyed, uh, my ability not to be, let the game affect what I was doing. I was just a dozer operator. I was just a shaper. And Pete didn't mind that a bit. Two lanes or four lanes, right, Jim? <laughs> what do you want, Pete? Two <laughs> or four? That's right. That's right. I appreciate you coming on, Bobby. Well, that thanks, was- guys. You guys are, you guys are, um, you guys are great to call and to uh, invite me in to uh, chat with you. Hopefully I didn't bore you too much and hopefully I didn't get off course too bad. I, I tend to tend to hit one out of the fairway every now and then I'm not playing as much as I'd like to. And my handicap is, is easing on up. But I don't know. I, you, still you, a, you can still hit it, Bobby. Well, I don't, well, thanks, but um, I don't get to play as much and people think you're in the golf business. You get to play a lot of golf, but frankly, it couldn't be further from the truth, Derek. Well, thank don't, you, don't I know for it. Taking your time. Bobby, take care. I, I'm, I'm going to try to catch up with you down in Florida here soon. I hope so. Anytime. And anytime you guys are in North Florida, come see us at Ponte Vida as well. Will do. Thank you, Vert. I appreciate that. Look forward to seeing you again somewhere soon. Take care. All right, Jim, that was Bobby Weed. What a talk. You know, I've I've known Bobby for quite a while. He was one of the first architects that I ever called up on the phone when I started writing about golf courses uh, almost 20 years ago. And he was so 
uh, friendly and polite. And, and I kind of, I didn't, I don't want to say that I, I know him or we're friends, but I, I have talked to him quite a bit over the years. I've played golf with him a few times and I don't know in all my discussions with him that I ever kind of got into that level of detail that he was sharing with us in that talk. I mean, that was very detailed. Technically, he told stories about Pete. He got a little personal there. You know, he, he talked about artistry. He talked about history. I mean, it was just, he was just, um, he was on a roll. I loved it. I enjoyed that. Well, I, I can tell you that I enjoyed it because I wanted to talk to Bobby about Bobby, but as we went on through the conversation, he referred to Pete on several occasions. So I, I, I totally understood his, his love of, of, of what Pete gave him in the design business. And what, one thing that caught my attention was when he said, well, Pete, Pete's all on his shoulder. And on his shoulder, I'm assuming that he meant, and I didn't ask him this, but I, I think he meant that no matter what he does in, in the golf business and what, he, what golf courses he designs, he always knows that, that and he always remembers some of the things that Pete had, had taught him. And he's never going to forget those. And anybody that worked for Pete, they're never going to forget those little nuances, those little instructions, those little things that Pete did all day long when you walked the golf course with him, when you shaped the golf course for him. Pete Dye on his shoulder. I guess we have a Pete Dye on all of our shoulders, whoever had a chance to work with him. Yeah, you know, that reminds me of something as you're talking, I'm, I'm flashing back and we brought this up about uh, all, you know, and it's well documented every time, you know, that Pete comes up on television, people always talk about the Pete Dye tree and all the people that he influenced yourself included. And, and there are, you know, 20 different people you can name that are still working in the business somehow that, that are kind of fall under this Pete Nalestai umbrella who they brought up and they all have such great affection for Pete and Alice as, as you do, it, it comes out and you can hear that in your voice when you talk about Pete and that's the same with everybody else. And I asked PB die when he was on my podcast, I asked him, how does that sit with you when you've got all these people that you know, and you've worked with going back decades and they all look at, your dad has kind of like a father yeah. figure and they have such respect for him, but, and yet it's your father. <laughs> How do you deal with that? <laughs> and he kind of acknowledged that that was the case and it was a little awkward. Um, but you know, PB's a funny guy and I think he made a joke or something about it after that. Well, and I could tell you the same for Perry die. When I wasn't working for Pete, I was helping Perry working for Perry on, on several projects. And <clears throat> I know that when his mother and father passed away, uh, Perry f referred to them as the greatest. And yeah. what else could you ask of your mom and dad other than they were the greatest? And and that's the the sentiment that Perry told me. And and it was it, it was touching. I'll be honest with you. Yeah, the 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 concept of Pete die on the shoulder. I, I mean, especially for Bobby, because Bobby continued to work with Pete and have a, a close relation with Pete right up until the very end. So, you know, th their their paths and their lives and their careers are so intertwined. It's not surprising that Bobby would feel that Pete Dye was, was with him in present, even though Bobby's done, as we said, some remarkably individ individualistic yeah. work. <clears throat> His artistry 
and creativity is, I think, I think incredibly underrated. And you know what? I, I talked about the two golf courses, the one in Stillwater, uh, Minnesota, and and the, uh, the couple in, in Philadelphia area. But I didn't make a mention of the fact that I did tour the and play the golf courses in Vegas, TPC at uh, Las Vegas, TPC, uh, the two courses down there that use the, uh, the desert, the Canyon Desert, Arroyas of the Southwest. You know, he had a quite a variety of golf courses that he worked on and locations that he was involved with. And that's why I'm so interested to see the Grove, because when he talks about the see that see that out there, Derek, that's my ocean. I'm dying to see the visuals that he extracted from that ocean that he talked about. And so from the deserts to the sand gravel of, of, of Minnesota, to the uh, rolling lands of Philadelphia. Bobby's been in a lot of locations. I'm, I'm really curious to see the Grove and to see that, what he referred to as the ocean. Yeah, it, it's interesting as as artists age and mature and, and, and have built up this in, incredible textbook of experiences and knowledge and, you know, their toolbox is full. Bobby's at this point in his career where, where he could literally do anything. You could drop him in, in Taraiti and you'd get something <laughs> remarkable. And you could put him on, you know, the Grove property, which is a flat <laughs> a citrus right. grove in in South Florida with not the greatest soils. Um, or I shouldn't say that. I don't, I don't know but if the soils were great or not. But, you know, the, the land wasn't giving me anything. And he said to us, Jim, he'd almost rather have uh, at this point in his career – a piece of land like that where he can create yeah. he has the ability he has the technical and engineering ability to make a great golf course and he knows how to make it drain he can make it work he'd almost rather have that and i've asked this question to numerous architects before would you rather have a flat piece of land where you can go in and it's the it's the uh the product is going to be the total creative process of your mind it's going to be your your Years from top to bottom because it's it's a blank canvas. Or would you ha- rather have, a, you know, a site that has natural features, but it's going to force you or encourage you to play off things that are already there? So there's going to be less of your touch on it. It's going to be less of of your instinct. And almost everybody says they'd rather have the great piece of land. And here's Bobby saying, you know, at this point in my career, I think I might like to have the blank canvas. And you know, I asked him directly. And he, he he was not afraid to to go down and talk about the Grove, talk about the quirkiness. He loves the quirky. He loves designing the assholes. For me, you know, designing the assholes, and, and you're familiar with what he's talking about. Most people are. I like laying out straight holes, and then I put interference or interruptions within that straight hole. But Bobby, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, he – he likened the, to doing the S holes, the, the setup of of the holes and the angles, and turning the greens, and interestingly floating his own greens, which I I still do today. Bobby's does as well. The S holes that, that he liked creating, I think you could you can do that more creativity wise with the flat site or with a site that you can create. Uh, at will, your thoughts and, and ideas that you lay awake at night thinking about. I agree with you that he 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 tended to lean towards the the grove as as his inspiration. But as as Pete always did, some of his best work, uh, Bobby referred to it at Sawgrass, where 
you know, working with David Postlewaite, who I had a great opportunity to learn my craft, David Postlewaite, helping Pete create sawgrass, creating the S-holes, uh, draining the land. I mean, that's what that's what Bobby is comfortable with. That's what he likes doing. But he has shown us that when he gets, you know, good good pieces of land, what some people consider good pieces of land, rolling hillsides, he's also able to do the same thing. So he, he can do it all. That's a great, great compliment. Yes. You know, and when you think of the S-shaped holes, the ones that, when Bobby said that to me at the Grove, we were on a hold, and it was a classic, you know, it starts to, to bend, curve one way, and then curve back the other way. What you're talking about, how you like to lay out a straight hole, and then you create interference, like, I think of, like, a Donald Ross, p- perhaps, you know, where he's got kind of got these bunkers slashing in, so it forces you to jog, but the hole is essentially straight. When you think of the S-shaped holes, it's in the Pete Dye mode, you think of, 11 at Whistling Straits or 16 at Kiowa Ocean Course, where they really are kind of these these curving one way and then it curves back the other way into a green with kind of hazards, you know, on each inside each right, elbow of right. that. But it reminds me of what, what Gil Hance said in our last talk about Pete Dye and how Pete Dye was really the first architect probably to pull instinct and inspiration and design principles back into the spotlight from the 1920s because that S shape, that's George Thomas. I mean, it's in his book. You can look at his diagrams and those holes are are really curving and flowing. And that was, had been kind of forgotten or at least not addressed or talked about for many years. And and I think Pete Dye by reincorporating that and of course, putting his own stamp on it, making it a a Pete Dye hole. (laughs) He was the first person to bring that back. And now we think of it as a, as a Pete Dye idea, but, but it, it really was, it is something that goes back much farther than and that. Uh, when you're working on assholes, uh, there's a, a funny joke that happened at Sabonic. I won't repeat it, but when you're working on assholes, uh, um, <laughs> assholes are something <laughs> working with. Or, sorry, it allows you to hit. It, it makes you set up for the draw, and it makes you set up for the fade, and then you reverse it off the tee. You hit a fade. And then the second shot, you hit a draw. So it, 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 it helps you mold these shots mentally, framingly from the tee with the draw, with the fade. So it, you're hitting all kinds of different shots. I totally understand <clears throat> their importance, and I, I'm not afraid to do them. I just, mm-hmm. I just prefer the straightaway with, uh, with uh, interference and interruptions in between. But – like I said, I'm uh, assholes. They are important. Pete maximized them wherever he went. Bobby Weed loves them. Gil Hans says they have come back from their their twenties beginning. George Thomas. So I hope to see, as Bobby said, a wide range of styles that we that we get to enjoy. Not the same old thing, but a lot of different things. And that's all you could ask for. What did you make of his comment about the routing at the Grove? Now, first of all, uh, for those who haven't, if you want to read more about the Grove, you can go to Golf Digest and do a search for the Grove. I wrote a story on it uh, that talks about this element of the routing. It's pretty ingenious. The the, the one nine f- flows counterclockwise, the other flows clockwise. Halfway through, after four holes on each uh, nine, there are junction points where you could play the first four holes, then flip over and play the the 
second half of the other nine so you can break it up. But he talked about the routing and how he was going for, you know, kind of a balance between holes that curve one way and, and holes that curve another way. How important, Jim, is that in a design? If you if you're working from scratch on a neutral blank canvas site like that, where you have the ability to kind of make the holes the way you want them, is that something the architect should pay attention to? I imagine if you're on a natural site, you kind of you got to work with the land, you know. So you might have more holes that go one way than the other. But he said he wanted to balance that out. Is that an important architectural principle? You know, uh, I think it's a, an important ele- element of the design. If you're looking to challenge the golfer with a variety of shots, right and left, left and right, I think that's important. I think it's important if you're trying to draw the most out of the land that you can, given the land that you uh, are, are, are working upon. I always talk about triangle golf, and, I've, I've, and I don't know if I brought this up to you before, but one of the things that I've always wanted to do is, uh, was a routing called triangle golf. And it sounds like Bobby has done that in his uh, intermixing of holes. You can choose to play the first four holes and then, you know, flip out and and go to another uh, seven, eight, nine or however he does it. That's another reason why I want to see the Grovis. I want to see Bobby's take on what I've referred to as the triangle golf theme. But in his setting, you can you could switch it up. You could have that balance. It was important for for Bobby to have the balance, you know, in in his routing. And you know, I've heard some talk about how this golf course would be a great match play golf course. I'm looking forward to seeing how that works out, and who decides what routing you go out and play. Is there a best? Is there a, a better? Which routing is the is is the most fun to play? The most challenging? That's what I'm curious to see. I did catch that, and uh, you know he's he's trying something different. And, and we've talked about being outside the lines, and and maybe this is really a golf course that gives a, gives the golfer everything he could want. First of all, you know we talked about the. Uh, his aesthetic, the way he finished the golf course, the way it's more a little more clean lined. So I, I know when a lot of people see pictures of the Grove, they're they're not instantly taken by it because it doesn't look, it doesn't have you know fescue bunker faces and it doesn't look windswept and it doesn't look like it's been there for a hundred years. He wasn't going for that, but but there is real innovation in the things that he's doing there within the holes and, and with the routing and just the, the bunker placement, it, it's not typical, which I think we, we should embrace that. I embrace it anyway. Nobody else has to. I think it's worth noticing and worth talking about because it is fresh. You mentioned, though, that uh, designing uh, holes like that, a uh, balance going left and right, it does. it is important if you know that good players are going to be coming to visit your course. And, of course... That is the case. Michael Jordan's the client. The golf course does not get a lot of play, but the people that are going to come through that golf course, including Michael Jordan, he's a good player. A lot of the guests are good players. A lot of tour pros I know have been uh, playing at the Grove. So it does get good play, and there's a lot of match 
matches happening there at any given day. You might get a, a sixome or a sevensome or an eightsome in it on one hole. Um, so there's a lot of action at that golf course, and I think it sets up perfectly for the, that type of play where you're looking to knock guys out or take money or win holes or, or provide uh, you know dramatic outcomes on on any given hole or coming down the stretch of a of a game. And you know the client much like the clients of, of, of Robert Trent Jones Sr. and, and uh, Jack Nicholas and Arnold Palmer and Reese Jones and Bobby Jones, the clients, uh, what they want, why they search out uh, particular golf course architects, designers, uh, why the tour uh, looked to Pete, why Herb Kohler wanted to go to Pete Dye whenever he could, because they know that they have the opportunity that the architect has an opportunity to provide what they believe they're looking for. And I believe that Bobby Weed took it, took it to the next level of thought. And we may never golfers may never realize all the thought that went into it. But I believe that Bobby is most proud of the work he did, even including that short part three, he talked about, He's proud of that work, and, and, and that's Pete Dye on his shoulder, proud of that work. If you don't mind, could I read a quote to you that was written in Pete Dye Golf Course's 50 Years of Visionary? I think this speaks to Pete, and I think this speaks to Bobby. And, and if you don't mind, can I, can, I, can I read this? Yes, please. And this is a quote in the inlay of the book. Donald Ross once wrote, quote, my work will tell my story, and that's how I hope to be remembered. I find the greatest satisfaction in believing that I have somehow contributed in making the game I love a more exciting one to play. And I think that would speak volumes of Pete, and I think that would speak volumes of Bobby Weed. And what else could you ask for? Yeah, I agree. And and I guess my final thought would be this. I think it's it's a hard thing to put your foot on, but put your finger on, excuse me. I, I kind of judge golf courses one way. When you put your head on your pillow the night before, how excited are you to get up and get to the golf course and play that particular golf course? Uh, there are a lot of golf courses that are exciting and, and are inspirational and, and, you know, make me either not be able to sleep or, or have really good dreams. But when I think about playing a Pete Dye golf course, Every single time you could tame in almost any Pete Dye course and said, Derek, you're going to go play there in the morning. I would be excited. I would be genuinely excited. Can't say that for everybody, but I say it for Pete Dye and I would say it for Bobby Weed too. If you say, I'm going to go play a Bobby Weed golf course tomorrow and it could be any of them. I'd be like, all right, I'm going to see something unique. I'm going to see something creative. I'm going to see something quirky and the golf course is going to get me thinking and it's going to be fun. And you know, that's all a lot of people could ever want and the talk with Bobby Weed really uplifted me as far as his energy level still there, not mailing it in as some people say uh, that uh, as you get to the to, uh, some architects just mail it in. Bobby Weed's still going there. He's got young guys around him helping him out, still floating his greens. He was so proud of that. I'm proud of that. That's engagement, and that's all you want from anybody who's designing a golf course for you, engagement. I'm looking forward to see what Bobby's 
got up his sleeve <laughs> next. I know he's got a few cool projects, so we'll check back in on that. But that, let's wrap this. Let's wrap this volume up, Jim. I enjoyed that. We're going to be back soon. We've got some more guests uh, lined up, and uh, thanks for listening, everyone. 